Hi, I'm Emily Paget. This is Century 21. Welcome to the last installment of the Zuckerberg Congressional Hearing. We're going to get through this last hour of the hearing, but first, here's what we learned last time. Facebook is ending its interaction with data brokers, meaning that it will no longer be purchasing information from third parties, instead relying entirely on its own information it's collected. Facebook cannot access user data after someone has deleted their account, which means that advertisers can't use that information for their purposes. The 2012 mood manipulation experiment adjusted the content of users' Facebook feeds to see how the adjustments would affect their behavior patterns and their interactions on the site. Facebook is working on a process for better reviewing and regulating the ads and content on its platform, such as advertisements and content relating to illicit drug sale or use. Zuckerberg has three categories of fake news, spammers, state actors, and straight-up misinformation. And Facebook upholds that it cannot listen to what you're saying via use of your phone's microphone, but people have still noticed some shady, very coincidental ads. This first question comes about 10 minutes into the fourth hour of the hearing from Representative Susan Brooks. She brings up concerns about the utilization of Facebook and other social media platforms for the use of terrorist groups such as al-Shabaab, al-Qaeda, and ISIS. Traditional media like broadcast news and radio have been a big factor in gaining more attention and recognition for terrorist groups. Of course, most of these media outlets don't support the goals of these groups, but they have to cover things like this. And the powerfully competitive environment results in news and similar organizations scrambling to cover any terrorist event, which effectively helps spread the message of these terrorist groups. In recent years, this has spread to social media. Social media has such a broad reach and can be done essentially anonymously, so it's naturally a go-to tool for recruitment, spreading messages, and gathering information. A study out of the University of Haifa in Israel found that almost 90% of organized terrorism takes place on social media, since it's so easy to connect with an audience and members of a group, which is what social media was made to do. Several social media platforms have taken steps to crack down on content posted from terrorist groups. For example, in 2012, Twitter adjusted the censorship policy in its terms of service, saying that they would be censoring tweets coming out of certain countries when the content of those tweets broke the laws of that country. Additionally, YouTube added a promotes terrorism option that people can select when they flag a video as inappropriate. There is also a United States Homeland Security subcommittee studying terrorist use of social media and figuring out how to control or eliminate it. Representative Brooks is concerned that, in the context of Facebook, nobody will flag terrorist content because everyone assumes that other people have already flagged it. Uh, nobody calls 911 in an emergency situation. She asked what is Facebook's leadership role in helping the American people fight terrorism and stop recruitment via social media platforms. Zuckerberg responds that they have developed several tools that have made it so that 99% of the ISIS and Al-Qaeda content that is removed from Facebook has been identified from the AI tools and taken down before anyone in the system has to flag it. However, can I ask though, and I appreciate and I've heard you say 99%, and yet I didn't go out and, you know, look for this, but yet as recently as March 29th, ISIS content was discovered on Facebook, which included an execution video. March 29th, on April 9th, there were five pages located on April 9th of Hezbollah content and so forth. And so what is the mechanism that you're using? What, is it artificial intelligence? Is it um, the 20,000 people? What are you 
using to, because it's, it's not, I, I appreciate that no system is perfect, but yet this is just within a week. Congressman, it's a, it's a good question, and it's a combination of technology and people. We have a counterterrorism team at Facebook. How large is, is it? 200 people um, are just focused on counterterrorism, and there are other content reviewers who are reviewing content that, that gets flagged to them as well. So those are folks who are working specifically on that. I think we have capacity in 30 languages that we're, that we're working on. And in addition to that, we have a number of AI tools that we're developing like the ones that I'd mentioned, that can proactively go flag the content. The most common avenue that terrorist groups take for recruitment via social media is finding potential targets on Facebook or Twitter, and then they move to WhatsApp, which is an instant messaging application owned by Facebook. Representative Brooks asked what specifically Facebook is doing to stop the recruiting and communications. So we identify what might be the patterns of communication or messaging that they might put out, and then design systems that can proactively identify that and flag those for our teams. That way we can go and take those down. Thank you. My time is up. I thank you and please continue to work with us and all the governments who are trying to fight terrorism around the world. Thank you. Thank we you. will. The next question I'll cover comes from Representative Mark Wayne Mullen, who speaks to the targeted advertising we're now so familiar with. Representative Mullen asks if there's a setting within the Facebook app that can adjust or block the sharing of the data Facebook has collected with advertisers. Zuckerberg responds that yes, there is. Go to your settings and then click ads in the left-hand column. You can adjust everything there, even the sponsored stories function we talked about in a previous episode. The next question comes from Representative Scott Peters, who calls attention to the potential loss of revenue that Facebook could be facing if it sacrifices selling advertisements for user privacy and how that would affect not only Facebook employees, but also shareholders. I wonder, um, I, I, take, I also want to take you at your word. Um, I believe you're sincere that you personally place a high value on consumer privacy and that that personal commitment is significant at Facebook today coming from you, given your position. But I also observe, and you'd agree, that the performance on privacy has been inconsistent. I wonder, you know, myself, whether that's because it's not a bottom line issue. It, it, it appears that the shareholders are interested in, in maximizing profits. Privacy neither, certainly doesn't drive profits, I don't think, but also may interfere with profits if you have to sacrifice your ad revenues because of privacy concerns. Uh, would it not be appropriate for, um, for us, once we define this, this duty, to assess financial pen penalties in a way that would sufficiently send a signal to the shareholders and to your employees, who you must be frustrated with too, that the privacy you're so concerned about is a bottom line issue at Facebook? Effectively, he's asking if financial penalties should be put into place surrounding this issue of privacy that maybe the lack of money would instigate a bigger concern around privacy or lack thereof. Congressman, it's certainly something that we can consider, although one thing that I would push back on is I think it is often characterized as maybe these mistakes happen because there's some conflict between what people want and business interests. I actually don't think that's the case. I think a lot of these hard decisions come down to different interests between different people. So, for example, on the one hand, people want the ability to sign into apps and bring some of their information and bring some of their friends' information in order to have a social experience. And on the other hand, everyone wants their information locked down and completely private. And the question is, is not a business question as much as which of those equities do you weigh more? Representative Chris Collins restated a pretty key fact that we've learned so far in the hearing, that Facebook doesn't sell data, and it doesn't allow and hasn't allowed third parties to sell data. Alexander Kogan broke the rules by selling his data to Cambridge Analytica. 
As Representative Collins put it, quote, it's hard to anticipate a bad actor doing what they're doing until after they've done it. And clearly Zuckerberg took actions after 2014, end quote. What data was being collected before you locked down the platform and how did that change to today? Zuckerberg explains that prior to 2014, when you signed in with your Facebook account to a third-party app, that app would be able to receive some basic information from the friends on your friends list, like their hometown and birthday. After 2014, after the whole situation with Alexander Kogan, Facebook made it so that it was no longer possible to share any information about your friends. Because that's a pretty big chunk of Cambridge Analytica's data. 300,000 people took the quiz on the Your Digital Life app, but Cambridge Analytica ended up having access to 87 million people's information, just because it also had access to the information of the Facebook friends of the people who took the quiz. Nowadays, if 300,000 people used a similar app, the app would have the information of 300,000 people and no more. So if you and your friend both happen to be playing a game together or um, on an app that listening to music together, then that app could have some information from both of you because you each had signed in and authorized that app. Um, but other than that, people wouldn't be able to share information from their friends. So the, the basic issue here where 300,000 people used this poll and came and the app and then ultimately sold it to Cambridge Analytica and Cambridge Analytica had access to as many as 87 million people's information wouldn't be possible today. Representative Debbie Dingell reiterated some more information that we've learned over the course of the hearing, focusing on facts that Zuckerberg didn't know the answer to. She lists that he didn't know about the court cases regarding Facebook privacy policies, he didn't know that the FTC doesn't have fining authority, and so Facebook couldn't have received fines regarding the 2011 consent decree, he didn't know what a shadow profile was, and he didn't know how many apps he needed to audit, among some other things. She asked him some other questions regarding the statistics of how many Facebook like and share buttons there are on non-Facebook websites. Zuckerberg didn't know the answer to that either, off the top of his head. I know you're still reviewing, but do you know now whether there are other fourth parties that had access to the data from someone other than Dr. Kogan? Or is this something we're going to find out in a press release down the road? I think what worries all of us, and you've heard it today, is it has taken almost three years to hear about that. And I am convinced that there are other people out there. Congresswoman, as I've said a number of times, we're now going to investigate every single app that had access to a large amount of people's information in the past before we locked down the platform. I do imagine that we will find uh, some apps that, um, that were either doing something suspicious or misused people's data. If we find them, uh, then we will ban them from the platform, um, take action to make sure that they delete the data, and make sure that everyone involved is informed. And you make it public quickly, not three years. As soon All as we right. find them. The next question comes from Representative Brian Costello, who asks if Facebook could be considered a publisher in the legal sense, if Facebook legally is responsible for the content that is put on its platform. This is an interesting question because in some instances, Facebook is a publisher. Most recently, they've started financing online video series such as Humans of New York, the series, which came out of the Humans of New York photography project created by photographer Brandon Stanton, Returning the Favor, which is a series centered around personality Mike Rowe as he travels the U.S. in search of people giving back to their communities, and the WNBA's WNBA All Access, which goes behind the scenes of women's basketball. There are a bunch of other shows, too. 
In this instance, Facebook is a publisher. However, in the case of Facebook users posting to their profiles or sharing pictures with their friends, Facebook is not a publisher. It's not legally responsible for that content. For this content, the stuff on Facebook that Facebook did not commission, Zuckerberg contests that, quote, our responsibility is to make sure that the content is not harmful, that people are seeing things that are relevant to them and that encourage interaction and building relationships with the people around them, end quote. The last few questions of the hearing come from Representative Kevin Kramer. The first one I'll cover deals with the bias of the Facebook staff in charge of reviewing flagged content. By the end of this year, there will be over 20,000 people charged with this task. Kramer raised a concern that Silicon Valley is a pretty liberal place, so the talent pool for these 20,000 content reviewers could lean to the left, which would result in a bias. He suggested that Facebook look to hire these folks from elsewhere in the United States to create a more diverse team of reviewers. Representative Kramer's other question was, in the light of the net neutrality conversation, whether Zuckerberg believes large online platforms like Google and Facebook should have the same responsibility to privacy as an internet service provider does. Before I get to that, on your last point, the content reviewers who we have are not primarily located in, in Silicon Valley. So I think that that, that's, that was an important point, and it, it I is. do worry about the general bias of people um, in Silicon Valley, but the, the majority of the folks doing content review are, are around the world in different places. To your question about net neutrality, I think that there's a big difference between internet service providers and platforms on top of them. And the big reason is that well, I just think about my own experience. When I was starting Facebook, I had one choice of an internet service provider. Mm -hmm. And if I had to potentially pay extra in order to make it so that people could have Facebook as an option for something that they used, then uh, I'm not sure that we'd be here today. Platforms, there are just many more. So it may be true that a lot of people choose to use Facebook. The average American, I think, uses about eight different communication and social network apps to stay connected to people. He's arguing for net neutrality here, that people shouldn't have to pay more money to an internet service provider to effectively access the websites they want. But he never gets to the issue of whether or not online moguls should be held to the same privacy standards as ISPs, because the hearing ends. Suppose you don't want to hang around for another round of questions. <laughs> just kidding. Your staff, <laughs> several of them just passed out behind you. <laughs> Here's what we learned in this last hour of the hearing. Facebook is taking measures to crack down on terrorist activity on the platform, including by creating AI tools that will recognize and remove any suspicious content posted before anyone ever sees it. It's unclear whether or not financially penalizing the company and its shareholders would place more emphasis on the privacy problem and getting it solved sooner. Facebook cannot legally be called a publisher, technically, as it is not legally responsible for all the content published on its platform. It is, however, responsible for the material that it commissions, such as the web series it's been rolling out. The 20,000-person content review team is not just composed of individuals from Silicon Valley or California or even the United States. It includes people from all over the world. And lastly, we learned that if Facebook had been created during a time where people had to pay an internet service provider more to use it, it definitely would not be as successful or widespread as it is today. So in light of this entire thing, what does it all mean? Is Facebook good or bad? Is it a necessary evil or just plain necessary with flaws? And what about Mark Zuckerberg? Since starting this little series on the hearing, I've gotten a lot of questions about whether or not I think Mark Zuckerberg is a good guy or a bad guy. Honestly, in watching this hearing, I'm pretty sure that he genuinely does have the best interests of his consumers at heart. 
I just think that Facebook is much larger than he ever could have imagined and it's a little out of control. Like any major company, it seems like Facebook is too big for one guy to handle all on his own. And I have no idea how Zuckerberg runs Facebook, if he has partners heading the company or if he has an extensive team of advisors or anything else. What I do know is that there seem to be many different divisions to Facebook, each with its own head, and that it's difficult for Zuckerberg to know the nuances of what happens in each division. That would explain why he wasn't familiar with all the details of the lawsuits regarding the Facebook privacy policy, or why he didn't know exactly how many like and share buttons there are on non-Facebook websites. It does seem like he's trying hard, but the company is simply too big for one guy to handle. In creating this series, I've seriously reevaluated my own Facebook use. I've decided that for me, I'm going to continue using it. I communicate with many friends through Facebook Messenger and its video chat system, and I buy and sell things using the Marketplace feature, and I'm able to know about various events at my university through Facebook. But I've definitely limited my use. I just feel uncomfortable using a service that might have so many loopholes regardless of how intricate the design of that website is. Like I said, it makes sense to me why these loopholes would exist. The site is just so big. That said, I'd be very surprised if government regulations on social media privacy didn't roll out in the next year or so. I mean, they already have in the European Union. I guess only time will tell about the United States and the rest of the world. In the past few weeks, I've noticed a variety of social media platforms, not just Facebook or its affiliates, but also Twitter and LinkedIn and even Pinterest, adjusting their privacy policies. I think it's important to actually read these in light of the Cambridge Analytica scraping to see what exactly these companies are putting into place to prevent similar occurrences. So what do you think about this? Are you still going to use Facebook or any other social media? I think the decision to stay on or to leave both are perfectly valid, but I want to hear your reasoning. You can tweet me at emmypadge or email me at submit.2.21, the number at gmail.com. This podcast is a product of Advanced Topics and Storytelling, taught by Dr. Bob King at University of North Carolina School of the Arts. This episode was written and narrated by me. I also produced it. Music is by Matt Carlson. You can find him on Instagram at mattcarlsings. Also, check out his other project at wilddomesticmusic.com. In light of the end of this series, if you have suggestions for episode topics, go to the new and improved century21.blogspot.com. That's spelled out C-N-T-R-Y, number two, number one, dot blogspot.com, and go to submit. Thanks for listening.